Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, you're listening to What's the Crack? And today I'm interviewing Reverend Danny Nimu a hypnotherapist, author, and YouTuber focusing on psychedelics and the drugs in the Bible. In today's episode, we talk about Danny's new book, Neuroapocalypse, psychedelics and their link to cognition and language, ayahuasca and ceremonies, and the legality of psychedelics. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and remember to follow up on Twitter at WhatTheCrackPod. Enjoy! Danny, could you start by telling us a little bit about what you do? Uh, hello, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, my day job is a hypnotherapist and I'm fascinated by all manner of things about cognition and linguistics and how the brain works. So I've got two books out. The first one's about discovery in science. That's called Science Revealed. And part of that's about how, how uh, let's say, scientists, how the ideas of scientists pop into their heads. And then the second one's called Neuroapocalypse, which is, again, about how things come into our heads, how how we notice things, what we see, what we don't see, what people from different cultures see and don't see, how linguistics plays into that, and how neurobiology plays into that, and how psychedelics play into that. Awesome. Could you give our listeners a brief brief synopsis of what this book is about, and what can our listeners expect? Yeah, my second book, Neuroapocalypse, is about, about the apocalypse, really. And when I talk about the apocalypse, I'm using it in its original sense, which is the lifting of the veil um and so i'm not talking about the end of the world type uh stuff so apocalypse is when we see something which has previously been hidden from us so looking in a drawer for example would be in greek that would be an apocalypse another word in english uh is discovery which is the same discover or revelation where a vellum is a veil so i'm interested in all the various different things going in going on in our brains and in our minds which let's say interrupt the flow of information coming into our uh, perceptual spaces so for example i'll give you a quick example of that if you were to ask a young person what um if you were to point at a slope and ask a young person how steep the slope was they would normally underestimate it but if you were to point at the same slope and ask an old person they would normally overestimate it because they're already interfacing with it on how difficult it would be to climb so i'm kind of interested in how the how the world that we see and also hear and also feel is influenced by things like linguistics, things like cultural bias, things like expectation, in the example I gave you there, and also, obviously, psychedelics. 
Awesome, thank you. And can you um, explain a little bit about how your book uh, links in with psychedelics and how this is brought in with our language and our culture and our cognition? Yeah, so um, I guess there's two ways to approach that. Firstly, um, the writing of it in itself happened about a year after I first started drinking ayahuasca. Uh, I had uh, quite a strange experience where my body it wasn't actually on ayahuasca at the time but my my um my my body went into a kind of strange vibration I was actually at a party and I felt a bit um self-conscious about this but um because I was in Japan and they thought there was a strange foreign man here vibrating um and anyway that night um my usual insomnia changed a little bit and I started writing very frantically um kind of pouring out this information which then over the next year that kind of all came out so and then over the next let's say 15 years other than editing it and um, publishing it and so on and so forth so the actual let's say the inspiration for it itself was um, I'd attribute it to ayahuasca then the <clears throat> Aldous Huxley talked about um, a reducing valve he talked about how uh, we engage the world through through a filter or a valve which reduced the amount of information because we can't deal with all the information that's around us. So one of the things which psychedelics can do is to, let's say, open that valve a great deal. So we have more information coming through. And another thing which they do, let's talk specifically, if we talk about um, psilocybin, for example, that inhibits the anterior cingulate cortex. And what that particular part of the brain does is it uh, one of the things it does is it kind of decides is something this or is it something that so it coordinates information coming in from various different parts of the brain so when that becomes inhibited then certain things start to happen so a kind of famous one is synesthesia where uh, sounds become uh, where we can see sounds for example you might see the you might see the air around a bass speaker morphing or something like that so what's happening there is your anterior cingulate cortex is being inhibited. It also happens with acid and it also happens with epilepsy and some people are synesthetic without drugs. Um, but your brain is going, um, is basically not deciding whether it's a sound or whether it's a shape. And it's saying, well, I'll tell you what, you can be both. Yeah. Okay. So um, my next questions are going to be focused on ayahuasca. To start us off, could you explain what ayahuasca is? Ayahuasca is a, well, it means the vine of the dead, right, or the vine of the souls. Uh, it's, a, it's a plant, it's a vine, it grows in the Amazon, and it's usually combined with uh, a leaf, shakruna. There's other combinations in the, in the Amazon. So that, um, that particular brew is used in an indigenous context, also a mestizo context, um, for healing and for for other things as well for encountering the spirits in various ways also for divination my own personal i guess major experience with it was when i was ill i got leishmaniasis which is a flesh-eating parasite which can uh, develop into a cartilage-eating parasite so if it goes too far it can attack the cartilage in your nose and ears and so i was treating that with ayahuasca and i was drinking that every day if you're so it's used as a medicine, but it's also used as a, a way to connect with, again, worlds beyond, which is another kind of apocalypse. So it does lots of things. Um, it can, it stimulates your amygdala, for example, which seems to uh, 
allow memories which have been either forgotten or some might say repressed back into the stream of consciousness. And it also, it doesn't uh, inhibit the frontal lobes. Uh, one, one of the things it doesn't do. So it will allow you to process those things uh, whilst your mind is kind of, um, is at, it, at its cleverest, let's say. That's one thing it does. I mean, you can also get people see geometric patterns and all that kind of stuff um we tend to be a little bit obsessed with visuals in the west but in the jungle you can't really see very far you can only see up into the next tree and so i ayahuasca certainly certainly in the indigenous context or in the traditional context is more about teachings than visions it's more about realizations or like more specifically answer you know answering questions so if i've got a question you know, it might be about my writing, it might be about how do I resolve this, I will ask it before I drink a dose and wait for the answer to come in whatever form it will. Great, and um, what's the typical setting for taking ayahuasca? Is it um, is it a non-Western um, setting or is ayahuasca now used in Western society? Uh, yeah, it's well there's yeah when you start talking about traditional forms i mean there's many many different indigenous groups who use it in quite different ways and they mostly have uh, they have quite different taboos as well but certain taboos which are kind of across the board so for example they do a dieta which means they don't eat certain things uh they don't have sex for a certain amount of time before and afterwards um, they would be so in a very traditional shamanic setting the shaman himself or herself would drink it with a patient the patient wouldn't drink it but he would then from that state diagnose the patient and perhaps um, suggest uh, some herbs or some prayers or whatever they needed to do in order to overcome their illness that would be in a very traditional context and then you have mestizo context which is where the indigenous encountered encountered the let's say the newcomers uh the new races so the black and portuguese or spanish mixed mixing with the indigenous and they so they have their own traditions which are somewhat more urbanized uh again they're run by they tend to be run uh, let's say arranged around an individual so the individual shaman is the person who administers is the person that diagnoses problems and diseases they will also sing songs they're called icaros and Icaros are, uh, I mean, the way they're understood is the, the signature of the power of a plant, right? So if somebody is ill with a certain thing, then um, a shaman might sing a certain plant, sing the, the sound, or it's a, in a way it's kind of the magical name, uh, or would call in the power of that plant in order to help that person. Um, so that's, the, that's a traditional setup. The way that um, my lineage is uh, Santo Daimi, and uh, so it's a Brazilian lineage, and um, that's the place to drink it, really, is Brazil. They're also still practicing in Holland. There's different legal situations in different parts of Europe. Um, Spain is protected, so Spain is a good place to go and drink if that's what you want to do. Um, but in Santa Daime, it's a mixture of three things. Let's um, folk Catholicism. So it's a mixture of that and indigenous animism um the spirits and the also the kind of um a rather pagan feel feeling worship of nature so a lot of our our, our ritual is conducted oh the third thing is also european spiritism that has a has 
quite an influence on the on the lineage. So these three things come together into a ceremony which looks very much like um, going to church in a way. The 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 gentlemen wear blue slacks and white shirts and blue ties, and um, the women wear their outfits, and the men on one side, the women on the other. And there's a let's say a ritualized dance which goes from right to left, and it's based on the the motion of the sea. But the result of all this is around the central altar, you have a a, a moving geometry. Uh, which is also overlaid with um, percussion instrument, which is the maraca, or we call that maraca in English, and um, and singing. So, for example, if we're singing the Book of Mestrianeu, we'd sing 132 songs. So we would meet, we'd do a prayer, we would drink a dose, we'd then sing probably about 30, 40 songs, 30 songs maybe, drink another dose, sing another 30-odd songs, take a break for an hour, drink another dose, sing some more songs, drink another dose, sing some more songs, drink another dose, sing some songs, and then uh, the whole thing, and then finish the prayer. So the whole thing can take about seven seven hours. And I just want to check that I've got, I've understood this correctly. Is Daimi um, ayahuasca, but in a specific setting of those three um, religious types that you spoke about? Have I got that correct? Yeah, so I'll just explain that. Uh, ayahuasca is the name of a vine, and it's the name of a brew which is used as a tool uh, by many indigenous cultures and also mestizo cultures and also neo-ayahuasqueras around the world and kind of neo-shamanic groups and people are doing all kinds of things with uh, with ayahuasca. Daimi is a certain recipe produced in a certain way so it's it's produced under ritual conditions uh, either in silence or singing songs uh, with 12 men uh, smashing the vine with, uh, with wooden hammers um, and fires going and stuff like that. Um, and then it's consumed in a specific ritual, which is a daimi ritual. So daimi is both the name of the brew. It actually means give me, as in Santa daimi means holy give me. Um, yeah. So daimi, like you say, daimi is uh, that drink consumed in a very specific vessel. Ah, great. Um, so you've, in your book again, you mentioned that many ayahuasqueros uh, say that ayahuasca is not a drug. And could you explain why that is the case and what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, the word drug has had many incarnations over many years. And um, in Brazil at the moment, if you watch a film, if you watch an American film and the the actor goes, the actor says shit, then the subtitle will often read the word droga. So droga means a, it means a really bad thing, basically. And you see this in um, uh, in Bolivia, for example, I've got a t-shirt which says, la hoja da coca no es una droga, which means the leaf of coca isn't a drug right now from a kind of pharmaceutical perspective um or pharmacological perspective yeah it is a drug but then um you know because of the the drugs the, the war on drugs and the drug act that's become a rather pejorative term personally i don't really mind what it's called and some people call it a sacrament some people call it um a divine being um you know you can call it a whole load of things it's I, I I'm very fond of it. Obviously, I think it's beyond category. So I'm not offended when people call it a drug because um, uh, I don't really have a problem with uh, with drugs. Um, however, I can understand why people why people would say that. It's certainly not. It's certainly it, it's not something that makes you feel really good and then makes you feel bad, which is kind of what you're expecting with I don't know either alcohol or heroin or cocaine it's uh, ayahuasca could often be the other way, other way around it can make you feel quite ill people throw up while they're on it 
but then afterwards they feel amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you've said before that um, that ayahuasca's properties include uh, introducing memories into the stream of consciousness, including forgotten or repressed traumatic memories. Now, when I read this and when we were discussing earlier, it reminds me of the research currently going on into psychedelics and mental health illnesses. Do you think that there is a future for ayahuasca in Western medicine for mental health? It's already got a very long history of dealing with what we would call mental health problems. So, for example, if you start hearing voices in most places in the West, um, in England, if, uh, if you say to your doctor, I'm hearing voices, they will rarely ask you what the voices are saying and if they have any interesting information for you, right? They will probably whack you on some kind of antipsychotic. Now, hearing voices in the jungle or hearing the voices in mediumship or hearing voices in any other culture, really, apart from this particular, this particular point in history, would be either a divine voice or a demonic voice or, or, a, or a spirit or it could be it could be a number of things. Right. But it wasn't obviously the um, the mental health paradigm wasn't there. So. That would be one thing I would say. Uh, a lot of the mental health problems, we talk about obsession, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder. So we have a term terminology for that in Daimi. It's obsessor, spiritual obsessor, which means uh, an obsessive spirit, right? And, and, and we talk about them in terms of, of spirits coming close and starting to influence the way that you think, right? So we talk in, uh, in Western, in the language of, of psychiatry, they might talk about forced ideation, or suicidal ideation, or that kind of thing. So, um, a, a dimista or a or someone from one of the traditions would 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 deal with them in a in a slightly different way right from the beginning because the ontology of it is different, um, i.e., whether it's an actual spirit or whether it's something else. Now, I don't think it's too important to get caught up on whether the spirits exist or all that kind of all that kind of um, nonsense. Because obviously it's just it's just really complicated. And who knows? I don't know. Uh, and if you talk to mediums, they don't really know what they're. A lot of them won't won't have a very clear idea on that. Um, but what is clear is that the way that the way that you deal with voices is the same whether you're an occultist or whether you're someone suffering from what they call DID, dissociative identity disorder. So so again, um, to come back to your question, um, I think we need to be a little bit careful in a way because yes i do believe it can be very therapeutic and in fact i know that it can be very, very therapeutic um my wife for example back to her she had migraines until she started drinking daimi um i mentioned leishmaniasis before um and also you know i have um i have another friend who just was just unhappy he had a kind of existential angst he used to read too many french philosophers and he when he went and went to Brazil and he drunk daimi, he's been and he describes it as a happiness factory, which has just made him made him happy. Right. So I do think it, it can treat uh, depression. It can treat obsession. It can treat uh, addiction as well. We've had some successes with addiction. But um, it, I, I, I'm just a little bit wary of, you know, you hear people say things like uh, taking ayahuasca was like five years in thera of therapy in in an afternoon and it may have been like five years, five years of therapy in an afternoon but there's there's more to it than that and if we i'm just a little bit worried about psychiatrists getting their filthy hands on it without without a real appreciation of what it can do beyond 
you know, treating ADHD or whatever character, whatever, you know, categories they're coming up with uh, these days. Great. Thank you. In your book, again, you say that laws are made to formalise and standardise behaviour. Is this a potentially a simplistic uh, summary, but is this why psychedelics are banned? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that psychedelics are banned and, and drugs generally. And a lot of it's got to do with controlling People, I think, primarily first. If you look at the 1930s, 1920s, uh, when when cannabis gets banned, uh, it seems to be very much to do with the fact that it was what the Mexicans did and what the what the jazz musicians did. And those two communities, they wanted, you know, the American government was very uh, well. It wasn't explicit about this, but Nixon's chief advisor said that they knew they were lying about the drugs. So we're going back to going onto the onto the onto the um, 1971 now, actually. But it's the same kind of vibe. Using it was used uh, a traditional practice of the Mexicans that was used in order to uh, make illegal and therefore put them under the pressure of the state. Uh, if you kind of fast forward to 1970, Nixon came out of you know he was when he was elected he was losing the Vietnam War and he decided to launch two wars actually one the war on cancer which they still haven't won and secondly the war of drugs which is killing you know tens tens of thousands of Mexicans every year. Uh, and just causing absolute havoc the world over, but they were very clear about that. And his chief, his chief advisor, has, is on record as saying uh, we used it in order to to deal with the blacks. Really, the black people were pushing for civil rights in the in the cities, and the CIA decided to establish international smuggling rings, introduce crack to the ghetto, and use the money they were getting from selling cocaine to. Contras in various right-wing dictatorships. So back to your question, I think initially to control bodies as much as to control minds, 
when we get on to thinking about psychedelics, yeah, I think part of the reason is psychedelics quite simply make you question authority. Um, there's been a little bit of research. Robin Carhart Harris has done um, been researching this a little bit, but how how psychedelics using psychedelics makes people more liberal, for example, rather than more conservative. Uh, how it makes them more appreciative of nature. One quite interesting little bit of kind of informal research was at Breaking Convention uh, last time it was on. I think that was last year. Uh, a survey went around, and one of the questions was, uh, "What have you got into as a result of doing uh, taking psychedelics?" And one of the top, I mean, I think it's like something like one in five people have got involved in activism as a result of taking psychedelics. So, yeah, uh, I think it does make you a little bit of a danger to the state. And I think for that reason, the state is, but I don't think it's the whole reason, you know, I think it's got a little bit more to do with controlling uh, non-white people in, in, the, in the outset anyway. Yes. And um, I don't know whether I can, I've said this right. I'll, I'll say it anyway and see if it makes sense. But so psychedelics have uh, a link with spirituality and in your book as well with links with the religion and the Bible, etc. Does this... Is there ever friction between psychedelics and the rigidity of what science is? I, I, I feel that at some points, surely it would not fit with psychedelics, which is quite free and, you know, liberal. That's a great question and a real, um, something very close to my heart. I'm doing um, a talk in Prague at Beyond Psychedelic, uh, and it's about um, neocolonialism and prejudice in, the, in academia with respect to studying ayahuasca. I don't know, we had someone on TV the other day, we had a researcher called Bia Labati, was, was, she's, she's a great researcher, and she was on with this, with this psychiatrist, and this psychiatrist was saying, well, we need to test this stuff to see if it's safe, which is quite interesting, because you've got hundreds of years of indigenous use, and they've been testing it, and also working out what kind of taboos should be in place, what kind of foods can be eaten, what kind of foods can't be eaten. So it's not as if we're totally coming out of nowhere with this, in many ways, science can't really comment on a lot about ayahuasca. So, for example, this question, can ayahuasca cure cancer, right? Uh, disclaimer, I, would, I wouldn't say that ayahuasca is, uh, don't go and, you know, stop your chemo because you heard on the radio that ayahuasca can cure cancer. Um, the academics got together and they said there is no evidence that ayahuasca cure cancer. Well, that's not the correct answer. The correct answer is, we don't know, go and ask someone who's been using it for the last two, three, four hundred years. And maybe they've got a bit more of an idea. Another thing I'd say about how the scientific community advances with its study of, uh, of ayahuasca. Um, so there were two researchers, Callaway and Grob, in 1998, if I'm not mistaken. They came up with a, a theoretical contraindication between SSRIs selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is a class of antidepressants. And, and ayahuasca, and these two researchers, no disrespect to them, they were doing due diligence, but they said, well, because um, harmaline, which is in ayahuasca, and harmine, uh, they interfere with the uptake of serotonin, this may cause a problem because SSRIs also interfere with the uptake of serotonin, and perhaps we'll get serotonin syndrome, perhaps the brain will be overloaded with serotonin, right? So they proposed this theory, and if you go to a uh, pretty much any ayahuasca circle in in the West uh, or in the, you know in the States or in Canada, the first thing they'll ask you is, are you on SSRIs? Are you on antidepressants? Right. And the reason is because this taboo has now has now taken root in our society. If you want to drink, if you want to drink ayahuasca, there's there's a taboo. You can't be taking antidepressants. Now, 
all tribes have taboos. So, for example, if you want to drink ayahuasca in uh, Brazil or in Peru, you have to not have sex uh, for a number of days. You would be cutting salt and sugar and certain meats out of your diet. There's loads of taboos, you know, and the more indigenous you go, the more kind of um, strange they get. Like they might say you can't eat pork because ayahuasca doesn't like the smell of pork. Um, but we've got our taboo. We've got our taboo about SSRIs. Now, is there any evidence for it? No, there's not a single case, not even a doubtful case of anyone who has taken um, SSRIs and ayahuasca and has had a bad time. You know, some people have even, and, and, and a lot of people have done it because the UDV, which is another ayahuasca religion, they never believed this in the first place. And so they had plenty of people on antidepressants who were also drinking ayahuasca. And some of them even describe describe a, ple a pre pleasurable interaction, right? So it's quite curious. You think there's there's there we have the indigenous world, which is provide which has hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. We don't know how old it is, um, of trial and error, and not just trial and error. I mean, they would say uh, instructions from the brew about how to go about drinking it, what are the potential dangers, and so on and so forth. We haven't studied any of them. No one's looked into if it makes a difference to the e uh, to the neuroimaging if people have had sex. The day before, no one's looked into whether the menstrual cycle, menstrual cycle has any impact. They're not interested in studying what uh, indigenous people and traditionalist people have to say. And they're also not interested in studying their own taboos. They've got these two white guys who came up with this thing 20 years ago. It's not a particularly hard thing to test. And we've got masses of data, but that taboo is still in place. So to come back to your question, uh, yeah, absolutely. The dogmatism of science. Um, and that dogmatism, by the way, is... It's not necessarily about what has been proved. Uh, it can also, you know, if you if you look closely at the so what called the sociology of scientific knowledge, which is what my first book is about, how funding is allocated, what kind of things are allowed into publication. Uh, it, you know, it gets it gets very quickly, very very complex as to yeah, like I say, how how truth is managed in the real world. Cool. I've asked all my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd like to say if anyone's interested in what I have to write, I have a website that's www.nemusend, which is n-e-m-u-s-e-n-d.co.uk. There's quite a few talks on there, including about what I've what I've been talking about, scientific authority, and also about ayahuasca music and ooh, a whole load of curious things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the interview. And yeah. Cool, it's been a pleasure. And that was the interview with Reverend Danny Nimu. I hope you enjoyed. Danny's work can be found on his website at nimusend.co.uk and his book can be found on psychedelicpress.co.uk. All links are available in this episode's bio. See you next time.